0: Trader's Point family, how are we doing today? It's good to hear, good to hear, good to be here with you guys. I want to welcome everybody here at Northwest, as well as all of our campuses across the city. Uh, hey, we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you're just joining us for the very first time right now, we are in a series called The Cumulative Effect. Cumulative Effect. Um, I don't know about you, but cumulative is not a word that I use on a daily basis. Uh, I first remember hearing about it in high school, and it had a lot to do with my grades. Um, (laughs) And maybe you know where I'm going with this, there's something called your cumulative GPA. And the concept of this is that it's just not about uh, your grades that you get for one semester or even one year, no, we're going to look at your grades over the entirety of your high school or your college duration. And uh, what you know, either colleges would do if you're applying for, to get into college or even into the workforce, what these organizations will do is they'll look at all of your GPA across your entire uh, high school or college career and they'll use it to, to measure your academic growth or your consistency. And I know a lot of college students, it's finals week, you're like, why are you bringing up GPAs right now? Um, I get it. But the word cumulative can actually be defined in this way. It means increasing in quantity degree or force, by successive additions. Is anybody believing that after the NFL draft this past weekend, that this applies to our beloved Indianapolis Colts? God bless them. Can we get a good amen? (laughs) Blessed Jesus, in your name. Uh, (laughs) No, but the cumulative effect is really an effect that occurs over a long period of time. And what we've been saying is that um, this is exactly what our spiritual lives should actually look like. Spiritual growth, or what we would call formation, doesn't just happen overnight, it happens, it happens over time. It happens, you know, gradually, moment by moment, decision by decision, day by day. And we're being formed into something or someone. And as disciples, we should be increasing in the likeness and the character of Jesus. And Paul actually puts it this way in Second Corinthians chapter three, we looked at this this, uh, this past week. He said, but when one turns to the Lord, The veil is removed, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, here's the word, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what Paul is saying here is that there was a point in time, the point in our lives, where actually there was this, there was this veil over our face that was keeping us from being able to see God for who he is. And, and miraculously, by his spirit, we had this encounter with him, and he begins to change us from the inside out. We see his love, we see his compassion, we see, we see his mercy, and it changes everything. And the veil was not only removed from our face, it was also removed from our hearts and, and our minds. And as it is removed, it, it changes everything. And I love how Paul talks about you know, God is the spirit, which he reminds that this is not natural. This is actually supernatural. And so as we go through the this series, this, this isn't self-help. This is, this is actually self-surrender. We're not trying to become better versions of ourselves. What we're trying to do is we're trying to become more, more accurate depictions of who Jesus is. And once we surrender to him, his spirit enters into us and he begins to shape and, and mold our hearts and he gradually transforms us to look more and more like him, one degree of glory at a time. And so if that is true, if if, if we are being transformed into the likeness and the image of Jesus, we've been saying that 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 should change and impact every area of our life. And so a couple of weeks ago, we took took a look at what does this mean for us as as parents? How does this uh, impact long game parenting? And then last week, Pastor Ryan talked about how this impacts marriage. And and not perfect marriages, but we should have healthy marriages because we serve the God who created and designed marriage. So we want our allegiance to be with him. We want him to inform how we love our spouses. And next week, we're going to take a look at how this impacts community and relationships and friendships. But, but this week, we get to unpack how following Jesus impacts work. And not just any kind of work, but purposeful work. So a show of hands across all of our campuses, who, who remembers their first job? Let me see. Anybody remember their first job? Okay, I'm not going to embarrass you and tell you to, to yell it out, uh, but I will go first. I first worked at the Golden Arches McDonald's, I get some claps here, yeah. Some of y'all are clapping, some of y'all are staring at me with judgment, do not judge me. Um, but this was a unique McDonald's because it was in the Children's Museum, in the food court of the Children's Museum. And I was in middle school, I was an eighth grader. So this means that they were hiring kids to serve kids. I don't get why they were doing that. But this was not my favorite job. I dreaded this job. There would be loads and loads of kids coming into this food court ordering McDonald's, namely Happy Meals. I have never made so many Happy Meals in my life. I have PTSD to this day. I will not order my kids Happy Meals because I've made so many of them. It's like busloads of kids coming off of the bus into the food court. I don't know who dropped the ball on having kids pack sack lunches. That's not a thing anymore. It's like, no, they all came in, 30, 40, 50 plus kids, and every single one of them wanted a kid's meal. And so if you can imagine, this impacted the way that I viewed that job. I did not like it. It was not purposeful. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had a, a series of jobs over your lifetime. Uh, maybe you can say that that's your reality right now. We're like, Kyle, honestly, like, I don't see my work as, as purposeful. The reality is all of us long to be in some sort of work environment or to have our life count where it's, where it's meaningful. We long for, for satisfaction. We long for our lives to make a difference. We long to have purpose. But we don't wanna do that at the expense of losing ourselves in, our, in, in that job. We don't want that to take away from us being able to enjoy life. I actually saw these two elements of truth as we did our Easter surveys. If you remember, a couple of weeks back on Easter, we had you guys fill out these surveys to give us some input, some data on ways that we can serve you better. And one of the questions was, hey, what is a helpful topic that you could see us teaching on that would help you right now in your life? And there was a number of responses. Some of you said, you know, checked off a a book of the Bible or another topic. Um, But one of the main responses that I saw was understanding my purpose. And this didn't just come from teenagers, which you would probably think would be the case. This came from also people in their 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, saying, hey, I need help understanding my purpose. And then we asked the second question. It's like an open-ended question. Just tell us, what is the most pressing issue, the most challenging thing in your life right now? Some of you remember the question. And there were lots of responses. At the top of the list, there was you know marriage and parenting and my health. But also, what crept up towards the top of the list, which was very surprising to me, was uh, stress at work and work-life balance, which shows me that, you know, this is a significant area in our lives. And there may be a, a, a camp of people here who are like, maybe I do see my work as purposeful. Like, I, I, I'm signing up to follow Jesus, and I want him to impact area, every area of my life, including where I, I work. But I'm struggling with that. That's, that's challenging for me. And I often get the question from people, Kyle, how do I live out my faith in the workplace? anybody ever wrestled with that question? Maybe, maybe that's you right now. It's like, what do we do? What, what do I do to, to, to live out my faith, to show people that I'm a follower of Jesus at work? Do I, do I pull up into the parking lot blasting worship music, just Steven Curtis Chapman or Mav City so everybody can hear and know that I'm a Christian? Uh, do I just, you know, do the Chick-fil-A thing and respond with my pleasure every time somebody says thank you? <laughs> Don't do that. Um, <laughs> Do I, do I put the scripture as my, my screensaver at work so that when people walk by, they, they see that I'm a Christian? And maybe you've planned out this scenario in your life. It's like, I just pray that Ashley, from two cubicles down, walks by and sees it, and then corners me in the lunchroom and says, hey, I saw your screensaver, you're a Christian. How can I get to heaven? Would you please tell me the gospel? It's not that easy. And I understand that many of us have this, this desire, this want to live out our, our faith. And I wouldn't say that that's incorrect but I would say that it's, it's somewhat incomplete because before we can actually begin to live out our faith in the workplace, I think that there's something that God wants for us that's a little bit more substantial, a little bit deeper than that. He wants to, to reframe our thinking, and here's what he wants to do. He wants to give us a healthy theology of work, and that means that he wants us to have a biblical understanding of what work is to begin with, and he wants us to understand his heart behind Work. And so to do that, we're gonna be in the first book of the Bible, in the, in the very first chapter, Genesis chapter one. And for the sake of time, I don't have the ability or the time to really unpack all of the creation story, but here's what happens kind of at, at a high level. We see that God is an artist. Before YouTube, TikTok, or Instagram, God was a content creator, and he begins to speak creation into life. And he breathes and he speaks, and, and out of nowhere you see things start to get formed. and You see things that, uh, that, that contrast one another, but they also complement one another at the very same time. You see, you see heaven and, and earth be formed. And, and then you see the sun and the moon, night and, and day. You see, you see the, 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 the birds of the air and then the animals of, of the land. You see all these different things uh, begin to be formed that contrast but also complement one another. And he gets, he gets to that and he says, okay, there's still something missing. There's still something missing that I'm going to create in order to bring fully into fruition what I want. And that's what we're gonna pick up in verse 26 of chapter one. This is what it says. It says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, and they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, looking at, after looking at everything that God has done up to this point, God says, I got it. I'm going to create humans. And these humans are going to be unique. They're going to be distinct. They're going to be unlike anything that I have created up to this point. Here's why. Because they are going to bear my image. They're going to be my image representatives on earth. I'm going to give them this sense of, here's the word, identity. I'm going to give them a sense of identity. And so, so what does that mean? And that means that if you are, that you are not here by accident, you are not here by happenstance. That means that you are not just here to exist. It means that you have the very image of God on you, that you were intentionally and beautifully and uniquely designed to, and be sent into this world. And because of that, God says, you have inherent worth, you have inherent dignity, you have inherent value, and don't let anybody else tell you any different. (laughs) I created you, I put my image on you, I gave you your identity. Our identity comes from God. So if that is true, then that means that if your identity is rooted in anything outside of God, your accomplishments, your role, your marital status, your sexuality, your job title, man, you are misaligned and you're missing out on a divine relationship where God says, no, I wanna give you so much more. You have a heavenly father who says before anything else, before the the labels that society places on you or the labels that you even place on yourself, let me tell you who you are. You are my child. God's identity is stamped on you and you need to know that. So not only did did he give Adam and Eve identity, but he gives them uh, this command. He gives them something else. Look at what it says in verse 28. It says, then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and Multiply. And one of my favorite commands, if you ask me, can I get a good amen from all the husbands across all of our campuses? (laughs) Oh, my wife is cringing right now. I love you, babe. Um, He says, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So not only did God give them identity, here's the second thing he gave them. He gave them a sense of purpose. He said, I'm not just gonna tell you who you are, I'm gonna tell you why you are here. And he says, hey, fill the earth, govern it, reign. And I love that word, reign, because in the original language, uh, it means to have dominion, to have dominion. It's, it's almost a, like king language. They would use that word a lot for the kings that we saw in the Bible who would have dominion over territories. And we've been given this opportunity to partner with God to reign and to have dominion over all of the earth. I love the way that one Hebrew scholar translated it. It means to actively partner with God and taking the world somewhere. That's what all of us have been called to do, to partner with God, to to take the world somewhere. And we get a deeper sense of this actually in Genesis chapter two. Uh, Chapter one is really kind of like the 30,000 foot view of the creation narrative. And then in chapter two, the author almost double clicks on the creation story and you get to zoom in and see some of the specifics. And in chapter two, verse four, this is what the author describes, it says, When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth. And then look at this. And there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. And then later on in verse 15, it says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden, here it is, to tend and to watch over it. It's the very same concept that we get of reigning and, and, and having dominion subduing over the earth, to tend and to, and to watch over it. So God created, we see that in, in, in verse four, but there was nobody there to to take care of what he had created. There was this void, there was something missing. He like, everything was good, but it wasn't perfect just yet because there was nobody there to bring uh, cultivation and dominion over what he had created, to govern and to reign over it, to partner with him in order to bring order out of chaos so that society could flourish the way that God really wanted it to happen. So what does that mean for, for all of us? What does that mean for for you and and for me? All this talk about gardening and trees and and, and cultivating, because many of us were not professional professional landscapers. Uh, I was doing yard work this past weekend, and let me just tell you, that's not my ministry. Um, Thank God he didn't place me in the garden. I would have messed everything up. Um, No, but you're probably there thinking, Kyle, I'm a a teacher. I'm an accountant. Kyle, I'm a stay-at-home parent. What does any of this have to do with me? Listen, it has everything to do with you. All of us have been called to cultivate in our respective environments, to partner with God and to cultivate in our everyday work life. We've all been called to use the opportunities that we have right in front of us to bring chaos into order and to help humanity flourish, whether it's at a construction site, a classroom, a cubicle, or at your very own kitchen table. So here's what that means. That means that you're not just a teacher. No, you're actually cultivating the minds of people through education. That means that you're not just an accountant. You're you're cultivating order and balance in in finance. That means that you're not just a stay-at-home parent. Never, ever diminish that. Now, what you are doing is you're cultivating the spiritual growth and the character of your children. That is so deeply important, so never minimize your responsibility. All of us have been called to cultivate. Here's what we can take away. God created us to intimately know him and to partner with him in ruling over the earth, no matter what your occupational field is, all of us have been called to cultivate. So what that means is that following Jesus doesn't mean that we're just existing here, waiting to go to be with him one day when when we die. No, it means that we actively get to participate in what God is already doing around us and using the everyday, ordinary, mundane opportunities where we work and learn and live to continue what he has already started, to cultivate the soil in your, your work environment. But first, I think we have to kind of shift our our frame of, of thinking. And we can kind of gloss over what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And if we do so, man, we miss out on a key component of what work actually is. And so if you go back to verse 28, before God ever gave them command, right before it, it says this. It says, God blessed them. God blessed them. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. God blessed him and then he said, go and cultivate, go and reign and have dominion over the earth. And, and that word blessing, it's actually, there's a weightiness to it. There's a, there's a strongness to it. It means that, that you have a, a, a kind of a permission uh, from, from your creator to go and to create life and well-being from something. And so God blessed us with work. And so because that is true, then here's here's what we can take away. This is the first principle that we can actually apply when it comes to viewing work, is that work is a gift. Work is a gift. And so often, church, we relegate work to just being a grind, just being something that we have to do to pay the bills. We dread waking up in the morning and going to work. We are counting down the hours until it's time for us to clock out or, or waiting in the, our days away until it's Friday. Just if we can just get to the weekend and we, we think that work is just a grind and that's not the way that God designed work. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, yes it consists of, of daunting, mundane tasks at times. And, and yes, it can be hard and exhausting. And yes, you can have people at your job that are extremely difficult to get along with. Can I get a good amen? amen. Said that a little bit too loud, my man. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But at the end of the day, work is not a gift. Work, I mean, work is not a grind. Work is a gift. And so if it's a gift, here's what we have to do. We we have to treat it as such. You have to almost, again, shift our thinking. That means I don't don't have to go to work. That means I, I get to go to work. I get to show up and I get to make a difference. I get to do what I do with the best of my ability. I don't care how small or how insignificant the task is. It's a gift to be able to do what I get to do. So I'm going to do it with pride and I'm gonna do it with passion. Why, because I get to partner with God in cultivating. And not just that, man, I get to do it with excellence. And I get to do it with a a good sense of of quality because that matters to God. There's a, a great quote by the theologian Martin Luther. And he says this, he says, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested and good craftsmanship. That's true, God God cares about good craftsmanship. He cares about quality and and excellence in what we do, not perfection, not striving to to outperform and and outcompete everybody else so that we can make ourselves look better, but no, actually just showing up with a willingness to say, I'm gonna do my best, and I'm gonna put good quality into what I do. It kinda reminds me of uh, shortly after grad school, I I entered into the workforce and I had this, this job where I was working in sales for an insurance company. Was not my favorite job, it was uh, very difficult and it was uh, a job that involved working with people and oftentimes there would be people calling in wanting a quote on their car insurance and you got the people who enjoy being on the phone and you got the people who were cussing you out and just like, I'm just here for this quote. Don't, don't talk to me, don't do anything. But I would have to show up just with this willingness to be good at what I did. I wasn't trying to be the top salesman, I wasn't trying to, to outperform everybody else but I wanted to be good so I worked at it and I studied and, and I studied my craft and figured out ways that I could be better and it wasn't just a transactional thing for me. Now, I was actually caring about the person that I had on the other side of, of the phone. So I was asking questions to determine their needs and I was building trust and rapport and I was treating them with kindness and, and, and dignity. And, and not before long, uh, my supervisor began to notice. And he began to say like, Kyle, there's something different about you. Like you have a different disposition when you come in here, uh, different than anybody else. It's like you're not just caring about the bottom line of the company. Well, that's important, but you're actually showing up motivated by something, uh, something different. What, what is that? Why do you do what you do? It was almost like he was asking me, how how do I get into heaven? Because <laughs> I had an opportunity to uh, not explicitly lay out the gospel for him, but to just really tell him, now this is, this is a gift. This is an opportunity that I want to steward well, and I'm going to show up. I'm going to make a difference, and I want to be good at what I do. It reminds me of Proverbs verse 22, uh, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 29, where the writer says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Listen, God is interested in your good craftsmanship. He cares about what you do, why? Because you're representing him as you do it. So don't diminish that. I love what pastor and author John Mark Comer says in his book, Garden City. He says, a genuine, authentic love of excellence isn't rooted in greed or narcissism or materialism. No, that's, that's dualism, dualism talking. No, but it's rooted in love. Love for God and love for others. It is a desire to serve God and his world well. So do you have that? Do you have a genuine, authentic love of excellence in what you do? Not to, not to climb the ladder and to make yourself look better, not to puff up your own ego or to get the attention, the recognition, or the power. Not to post on social media that you're killing it at your job. No, because you have a genuine desire to, to love God and to love others around you. You truly want to honor him with the gift that you have been given. So what does that mean? That means, that means if you are a creative Man, you create with passion and you create with just this sense of authenticity. You create uh, with this desire, not for, for other people's approval, but you, you, you create because you already have the approval of the ultimate creator. So you write the song, or you write the poem, or you create the video, you create with passion and purpose and good quality because God cares about that. That means if you're in office, office administration, and you organize the Outlook calendar. You you send the email with clarity. You you speak clearly, and you help to organize all the different things in in the office or in the company. Why? Because God is a God of order, and he cares about that. That means that if you are a barista, you make the best coffee here in Indiana, you do the little latte with the art and the trees and the the hearts and all that stuff, especially if you work at Provider in downtown Indy. But I'm not not biased. Uh, (laughs) They didn't pay me to say that. No, like, it's, God cares about that. God is an artist. So if you're a coffee maker, you're an artist too. And, and you show up giving everything that you have. So here's my point. Oftentimes, before we can tell people that we work with about Jesus, and we have an opportunity to show why we do what we do, Before you can have the explicit conversation about Jesus and the gospel, no, people are looking at your actions. They're looking at at why you do what you do, how you show up, and why you show up. You have an opportunity to say with your actions, man, this is is a gift. This is a gift that I get to steward, I get to cultivate. I get to do something that brings God delight and joy, not just by what I do, but by why I do it. But first, and you have to see work as a gift from God, not just a grind to get through. So that's number one, work is a gift. Here's here's the second one. Work is a ministry. Work is ministry. And sadly, we have relegated ministry to something that just happens within the walls of the church. Oh, that's for pastors. That's that's for people, you ever said this? That's for people in full-time ministry. I strongly despise that phrase. Full-time ministry, what does that mean? I mean, I get what people mean by it. It means people who you know, work vocationally as a pastor or maybe a nonprofit organization, and I have to fight myself from kind of being sarcastic from people when they ask me the question, uh, "How long have you been in full-time ministry?" Sometimes they'll ask me that, and they work in the marketplace, and uh, I'll, I'll be tended to, re- to respond, with, tempted to respond with, "You know, I've, I've worked in, in full-time ministry for several years. How about you?" And they're like, "Oh no, I'm I work in IT. I know. <laughs> how long have you been in full-time ministry?" Listen. Everybody, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are, you're in full-time ministry. You're in ministry just like I am. Do you, do you know what ministry means? Ministry uh, translated just means service. It means to, to serve people. But we've created kind of like this sacred, secular divide where, where people relegate ministry to something that strictly happens within church services and church activities. But guess what? We, we never see that in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is we see people using their everyday, ordinary lives, everyday work opportunities as a way to serve other people. Exhibit A, Jesus. He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter longer than he was a rabbi. And uh, in the Greek, the word carpenter actually comes from this word called tekton. Everybody at all of our campuses say tekton. Tecton just means worker. It means worker. It could be translated as like handyman, contractor, maybe even a construction worker. There was likely these jobs that Jesus was actually entering into where he was, he was doing that. Could you imagine Jesus showing up to fix your house? I know if it was me, I would get, I'd get real selfish. I'd be like, yeah, Jesus, I know I called you to fix this leak in, in the ceiling, but I actually need you to just touch and multiply all the square footage. Just upgrade <laughs> in your name, okay? Um, do it. But he didn't have a secular job. Now, this, this was ministry. This was equally spiritual to him as he was going around and healing people and, 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 and preaching the word of God. It doesn't mean that it was more important. It was just equally spiritual. And so I, I imagine there was times where Jesus came home after a long day's work, and it was hard, and it was grueling, and he was, he was tired, but he didn't look at it as less significant. We see this with people throughout the Bible. Daniel. Daniel worked in, in politics. The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. He used the gifts that he had to to build tents for for people. Luke, the gospel writer Luke, he was a physician. And you can see it all in his writings, how detailed he is and, and, and how specific he writes like in a way that only a doctor could. We see this woman named Lydia in Acts who, uh, she's the first European convert, the first European person to begin to follow Jesus. And the scriptures say that Lydia was a, a merchant, a seller of purple cloth. And that's just a, a way to say uh, uh, that Lydia had some money, that she was wealthy. She, she had bread. She would use her resources to help finance and to steward some of the opportunities that Paul and others would have to be able to preach the gospel. So we see people using the everyday, ordinary occupations as a way to serve other people, and guess what? We have been called to do the same. You have been called to do the same. So don't for a second think that because that what you do is not within the church building, that it's not spiritual. Here's another way that I wanna put it. Working outside the walls of the church doesn't mean you work outside the kingdom of God. Just because you don't work within the walls of the church doesn't mean that you're not working within the kingdom. You are a kingdom worker. What you do is no less spiritual than what I do. Now, I say that with a caveat because I know there are some, uh, there are some industries that, that are not God-honoring. And maybe you're in an industry like that, and, and you've been thinking about and praying on it, and, and maybe God could be calling you out of that industry, or maybe he's calling you to be a light within that industry. I can't answer that question for you, but I will say that for the most part, if what you do is not illegal, immoral, or inhumane, then, then you've been called to work within the kingdom. And so you take ministry wherever you go. That's why we, when we say we gather here at our worship gatherings, we gather, and then we say that we scatter. We gather, we, we encourage each other, we, we fill each other up, we, we, we worship, we, we rub shoulders with one another, and then we scatter, and we take ministry where we go, where we work, live, and play. So if you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? You're in full-time ministry. I now dub thee. You are, you're commissioned. You go. So what does that mean? That means, man, that your job is not just a job. That means it's a calling. It's a calling to minister to people, to help them, to to love them, to to, to lead them, a call uh, to serve people in whatever capacity that you're in right now. But you have to reframe that thinking. I love the way that uh, Tim Keller puts it. He says, our daily work can be a calling only if it is reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. So maybe you need to to do some reconceiving. Maybe you need to reconceive your job as as an assignment from God to to serve others. And if you really want it to be purposeful, man, look at it as God's assignment to serve the people that you rub shoulders with every day. Wrestle wrestle with that this week. As you're you're going to work, you're praying, God, would you give me an opportunity to serve somebody else, not with my own agenda, not to get anything in return, but because I truly care about the interests of of other people. God, give me an opportunity to build relationships with people. Help me me to slow down enough to see what you're already doing around me and help me now to to have a desire to partner with you to serve other people by the way that I show up to work. So the first one is work is a gift. Second one is work is ministry. Then here's the third one. Work is worship. Work is worship. We work as an act of worship, not the other way around. We do not worship our work. That's, that's idolatry. That, that causes us to take a good thing like work and, and actually make it an ultimate thing, something that is the most important thing in our lives. And when we take that heart posture, man, it causes us to, to, to take things into our own hands and we do anything and everything that we can do to, to get ahead. We, we work long hours and we push other people down so that we can come up and, and really what we're desiring is to, to fulfill our own agenda, to build our own empire. No, we don't, we don't worship our work we work as an act of of worship. And I love the way that our our downtown worship pastor, uh, Mark Hofstrom, he often reminds us in in a way that only he can. He says, man, worship isn't just about music. Worship is a lifestyle. That means we embody uh, worship in our everyday lives. It's embodied in the way that we live. It's, It's presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. And whatever he wants to do in us and through us, we're available, including including our work. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of the famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach, but he wrote a lot of uh, famous musical uh, compositions, and he was very famous, very well-known, and he was actually a follower of Jesus. And I was reading about him recently, and what he would do is after he would finish writing a piece of music, he would often sign it with two sets of initials. He would sign it with his own. He would sign JSB, and then the second initials that he would write would be DSB. or excuse me, SDG. SDG, which means Soli Deo Gloria. And that was Latin for, for God's glory alone. For God's glory. What was Bach doing? He was saying, hey, this isn't mine. I'm not doing this to to become famous. I'm not doing this to, to draw attention to myself. No, Soli Deo Gloria. This is only for the glory of God. And all of us have the opportunity to show up and to kind of take that same premise when it comes to our work. We're not, I'm not showing up to, to, to build myself up. I'm not showing up trying to, to make it about me. Now, this is an act of worship to God. And we're actually, actually encouraged to do that by the Apostle Paul. I love, I love what he says in Colossians chapter 3. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Work willingly in whatever that you do, as if, as if you're, not, you're not working for, for people, you're working for the Lord. That means you're not just working for your company, you're not just working for your boss. No, you're actually, you're working for God. And that means it's not just about what you do, but it's about who you are as, as you do it. So what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? That means that when we show up, we're showing up on time. That means that we are operating with a, a sense of integrity in what we do. That means that we treat people with dignity and respect. Why? Because of what we read in Genesis one, every single person that you lock eyes with is made in the image of God. Every single person is somebody that God created and Jesus died for. So if that's the truth, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat them with dignity and respect and, and value. That means that we, we're honest in what, in what we do at work. That means we're not cutting corners or we're not doing things unethically. That means that we honor leadership. We honor our supervisors and our boss. Some of y'all are like, pray for me. You don't know my boss. Uh, that's a little difficult for me to do. No, but we, we come with a sense of, of worship. Don't forget that. And because of that, because work is an act of worship, then God gets to define, listen to this, God gets to define what success looks like at work. I know that you have goals and, and metrics and things that you, and guidelines that you probably have to abide by. By all means, please do. But some of us need to kind of reframe the scorecard in which we have when it comes to work. And so I just want to take a moment to walk through a few, uh, a few ways that we can look at work differently, a, a new scorecard that we can have. And what I did was I, I adapted these from a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who wrote an incredible book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And I even have these printed above my desk as a way to just say, God, remind me of what matters most. God, help me not to be focused in on things like the numbers and, and what success can look like within ministry. Now, this leads out in what what ministry actually is, what work actually is. And so maybe you take a picture of these or write them down and then you lay them over your own life and see how you can grow in some of these. Here's the first one New scorecard for success. One, I live healthy rhythms of being with Jesus, embracing my God given limits. Embracing my God given limits. Guys, we are running so fast in our world, in our society. Busyness has actually become a, a virtue. It's actually a good thing to say, you know, I'm busy. Huh? Every time you ask somebody, how you doing, what's they say? Oh, good, busy. We are constantly moving. And it's almost like if I'm, if I'm productive, then that means that I'm successful. But God gave us limits. God says, no, no, you actually weren't designed to be a machine to run 24-7. No, I, I created you with a healthy sense of limits. I mean, if you go back and read the creation story, God creates everything in five days, everything on the earth. On the sixth day, He creates humans and gives them this identity and the purpose that we talked about go be fruitful and multiply. And then what does He do on the seventh day? He rested. So put yourself in in Adam and Eve's uh, shoes for a second. They get this command be fruitful, multiply, go reign, subdue the earth. And they're like, okay, we're gonna get a good night's sleep because we've been given this command. And in the morning, we're gonna wake up and we're gonna kill it. And they wake up and God's resting. And they've been given this command to, to, to rest, to, to, here's what the word is, to Sabbath, which means that we don't work in order to rest on the weekends. No, we intentionally rest so that we can be filled up in a healthy way and, and commune with God so that we can go into the workplace in a healthy way and to work with intentionality and, and purpose. And I've tried to implement this in my own life, and I don't get it right every time, but uh, we try to set a time, purposeful, 24-hour periods as a family to, to Sabbath, we got three young kids, and so we try to make it fun. And our Sabbath is from Friday at 6 p.m. to usually about Saturday at 6 p.m. And I pick my kids up from school. We go get slushies. We go pick up, you know, we go pick up food, and then we come home Friday night, and we have movie night. And it's been our way to kick off Sabbath. And then we wake up Saturday morning, and we're sleeping in we're not waking up to an alarm clock we're actually being very slow and methodical in how we go about our day and we we all cook a big family breakfast and our kids love it we're not rushing out to different errands and and traveling for sports and all these things nothing wrong with that but it's like we're trying to intentionally slow down and just have a a regular rhythm of of rest we take naps and we get outside and we try to do things that are life-giving so what does that look like for you How can you begin to implement a a Sabbath or a period of rest? Maybe, realistically, you can't do a 24-hour period. Just carve out whatever that looks like for you and say, how can I slow down? And how can I remind myself that I'm made in the image of God, but I'm not God? And I want to practice presence over productivity. So what are your God-given limits? And then live within those. Here's the second one. I actively listen to Jesus as I lead and serve. I actively listen to to Jesus as I lead and serve. And how are you taking Jesus with you into your work environment? What are you meditating on earlier in the the day or maybe the previous night that you get to actually take with you into the environment? And it shapes and it impacts how you respond to people. It, It impacts how you respond to certain situations. There's actually this practice called Lectio Divina. There's probably people here who have, have uh, heard of it. And that just means divine reading. It's a devotional practice that I've started to, to do. And I was fascinated by the origins of it. It has some incredible practical uh, benefits. But I was, I was reading where it came from. It came before the invention of the printing press. And what would happen is everybody in the town would come to the church every single day, and because they didn't have access to the Bible, the priest was the only one who would be able to read from the Bible. So what he would do is he would read audibly to the entire congregation, and he would read a passage of scripture. And then people in the audience are listening to the passage, and they're trying to identify key words or phrases that they can be able to meditate on and take with them as they leave out of the church. So go with me for a second, imagine you're here, you're listening to a passage of scripture being read, and then you listen for a key phrase, and if you're the butcher, you're going back into the butcher shop with God's word, a key word or a phrase that you're ruminating on throughout the day, and you're saying, God, help me now to implement this in my daily life. If you're the teacher, you're saying, I'm taking this into the classroom with me, what's that word or phrase that I actually want God to actually, and not be uh, just ortho, uh, orthodoxy, where it's information, but it's orthopraxy, and I'm actually practicing it out on a day-to-day basis. If you're the baker, you're going into the baker, and so on and so forth. You're taking Jesus with you where you work, live, and play. So how are you listening to Jesus and leading from that place with others? Here's number three. I give my best time and energy to a healthy marriage or singleness before leading others. Guys, this is a reminder that home is your first ministry. My marriage, my family, they are my first ministry. I never want them competing uh, for my attention and my time with the church. I never want my wife saying, hey, you give more time and more attention to discipling other people or speaking on a stage, and yet you are not doing so at home. I never want my kids to think that the church took their dad away from them. If anything, I wanted them to love the church more because of what I get to do, not less. And so all of us have this opportunity to say, hey, what what, what are my relationships at home looking like before I invest in my work? If you're single, what are the, the relationships around you, your friendships that you can invest in? And many of us have this opportunity to do a better job. And this isn't to, to criticize or, or to demean, but there are so many of you. If you're in business, you're an incredible leader in the boardroom, but you're an absent leader in your living room. So, how can you now step into this and say, no, first, home is my first ministry, and I'm going to devote time to my marriage and, and to my kids before I devote time to anything else? They get priority on the calendar. Here's, uh, here's number four I invest in a few intentional discipling relationships. This is just answering the question, man, who are you pouring into? Who are just a small few uh, you know, individuals that already are in your life that you can be very intentional about just uh, reproducing yourself uh, in a work sense and also spiritually? Or maybe you're in a season where you're saying, hey, no, I actually need to get up under somebody and I need to be poured in too. So who is already in your life and how are you pouring into them at work and beyond? And then here's number five, the last one. I lead and serve from who I am not pretending to be somebody that I'm not. I lead and serve from who I am, not pretending to be somebody that I'm not. This goes back to our sense of identity. It goes back to our sense of our identity as a church, of who God says that we are. So we show up to our work environment in our authentic, genuine self. It's not imposter syndrome. It's not us putting on the front. It's not us leading with, out of this vibrato of just I'm gonna command uh, leadership and I'm going to demand, demand submission. No, I'm being, I'm being real because People actually gravitate towards that more than they will uh, me pretending to be somebody that I'm not. I love the way that Craig O'Shell says it. He says, people would rather follow somebody who is real than somebody who is always right. So don't show up trying to feel like you have all the answers. Be humble, be authentic, be genuine in how you lead and serve other people. And so as we close, I just wanna kind of bring our attention back to what I led us to kind of earlier on. And that's the fact that all of us, all of us are kingdom workers. No matter what your occupational status is, whether you're a student, an employee, whether you are in between jobs or you are retired, if you are a follower of Jesus, man, your work is for the kingdom. And that's important. That matters. And so many of us get caught up in building our own empire and we become focused on the wrong things. And we need Jesus to remind us of what's most important. He needs to kind of recalibrate us in in some sense. And maybe that's That's what's happened for you today, It's just a recalibration of what's most important, how you view work, because if you're honest, you've been kind of just building your own empire, building your own kingdom. Work has been a means for you to kind of build yourself up or to provide, and that's solely what it's been. But even Jesus had to kind of recalibrate the disciples when it comes to viewing our own kingdom. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he he resurrects and he spends this time with the disciples and, and they begin to ask him a few questions. And in Acts chapter one, this is what happens. It says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and, look at this, restore our kingdom? He replied, "Man, the Father alone has the authority to do those, those uh, had to, has set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, hey, you're still focused on this kingdom. You're still focused on this thing where you are at the center of it. I have so much more for you. You're going to help me actually advance my kingdom. My spirit is gonna come upon you. My spirit is gonna give you power. My spirit is going to enable you to be my witnesses, my representatives to the end of the earth. You are my children. Now go, it almost sounds very similar to what God said in Genesis one, go. Rain, cultivate, not only in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual one as well. Why? Because you have encountered me. You are my child. And now you have been sent to have dominion and to tell everybody about who I am also with your words, but also with your actions. So here's a question that I want to leave us with. Are you concerned about building your own kingdom or advancing God's kingdom? Are you more concerned about building your own empire, your own kingdom, or is it a mission for you to actually step into what God is already doing and to advance his kingdom? Work is a gift. Do you see work as a gift? Do you see work as ministry? Do you see work as worship? Because all of us are called to ministry. All of us are called to be his witnesses, his representatives in what we do, not just with our words, but man, with our whole lives as an act of worship, man. So here's my charge, my challenge to us. Let's be kingdom workers. Let's be representatives of God's kingdom. Let's take him with us everywhere that we go because that's been our call. That's been our assignment. It's not just about waiting to go to heaven when we die. It's actually making earth look more like heaven while we are here. So while we do that, we're his workers. And I want to invite everybody with us at all of our campuses to go ahead and stand. And what I want to do is I want to just kind of speak a word of blessing over you to encourage you no matter what your occupational status is. I wanna remind you that you are a kingdom worker, that you've been called to build God's kingdom. So, if you work in administration, agriculture, architecture, or athletics, you're a kingdom worker. Build God's kingdom. If you're a business owner, you're a kingdom worker. So you build God's kingdom. If you are a contractor, construction worker, or work in custodial service or customer service, you're a kingdom worker. Build God's kingdom. If you work in education, entertainment, or engineering, build God's kingdom. If you're a first responder, you work in finance or food service, you're a kingdom worker, build God's kingdom. If you work in healthcare, health and fitness, or hospitality, you're a kingdom worker, build God's kingdom. If you work in information systems or information technology, build God's kingdom. If you work in law or legal services, build God's kingdom. If you work in management, manufacturing, or marketing, you're a kingdom worker, build God's kingdom. If you work in politics, man, you need to be reaching across the other aisle in unity, not tearing down the other party to make your party look better, but to strive for unity and work to seek the kingdom of God. If you work in sales, science and technology, social work, social media, or if you're a student, you're a kingdom worker, build God's kingdom. If you work in real estate, retail, or you're retired, build God's kingdom. If you work in transformation, build God's kingdom. And if you work in vocational ministry, full-time ministry, you're a kingdom worker, build God's kingdom. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've called us. We thank you that you have said work is a gift that we're not just here to exist and then die one day, that we're here to live on purpose for a purpose. Help us to maximize the opportunity that we have. Help us to redeem the ordinary mundane routines that we have in life as an opportunity to show other people who you are, and then hopefully it opens the door for a conversation about your love and your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that you would help us to use work as ministry, that it's not about fulfilling our own agenda, that we, we seek ways to serve other people and then ultimately that it's an act of worship for your glory alone, not for our glory, Lord, but so that we can put you high above us to lift up your name. And as we do that, help us to have healthy rhythms. Help us to not burn out. Help us to rest with intentionality and understand that rest is equally an act of worship. God, we ask all these things in a way that, that allows us to speak Jesus over every person that we come in contact with. Jesus, you told us to shout from the rooftop so we have heard behind closed doors. And that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna proclaim the gospel, not with just our words, but with our actions. And may it all be done for your glory alone. Jesus, we thank you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.